Welcome to episode 17 of Cinema. As we keep plowing through them, I'm getting close to 20 episodes. I, I can't believe it. And I uh, want to give a shout out uh, this morning also to The Dorkening and uh, everyone in The Dorkening's uh, podcast network. If, if you just go to thedorkening.com, you are going to see some incredible stuff. I love these guys, uh, especially everybody affiliated with them. The, the incredible quality of work that they put out and the dedication is just amazing. I, I've known them a long time, watched them grow up into uh, really a formidable uh, entertainment force. And uh, so please, if, if you can, if you listen to other podcasts, check out the members of, of the Dorkening Podcast Network. So this episode opens up with a, a very personal kind of cinema broadcast in which um, I, I don't know if it 100% qualifies as cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, but there, there are some real cynical elements to it. And, and so for all you filmmakers out there that are looking for that next project and uh, you have a few bucks maybe in your pocket to option um, a, a project, you know, a book, whether it's, it's a book, a short, what, whatever it may be, uh, you need to be really, really careful of what you're going to put your money into. And, and one of the things that I, I want to go through is especially it's kind of like... Um, dating someone after a really bad breakup or going through a bunch of really bad dates. And if, if you've spent a lot of time reading bad scripts and going, oh my God, I read this. No, there's two hours of my life. I won't get back. No. And you keep piling up those no's and, and with good reason. You, you're reading these things and it's not that they quote unquote suck. It's, it's simply they didn't appeal to you. They, they have bad structure. There, there could be a whole number of problems, and it doesn't have to be horror. It can be any genre. So anyway, you've, you've plowed through a pile of scripts. Let's say you've read 12 to, to 20 scripts, and you're thinking, I, I really need something here. You, you have a few bucks, and it's almost like that money is burning a hole in your pocket. Don't give in to the temptation just to spend it on something that comes along that might be a tick, above what you've been reading. And, and you can apply this really to your own personal life in the dating world. I mean, if you've gone through a bunch of bad dates and you finally end up with somebody that you go out with and you think, well, they're, they're not as bad as the others, uh, that's still not the reason to put the ring on the finger. And, and it's kind of the, the same way here with this and this, this example I'm about to give you and, and how I'm going to correlate it, believe it or not, to the 1980 The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And uh, you'll, you'll see why, uh, because what, what my friend optioned was supposed to be a ghost story. And um, it, it turns out that, that it is, and, and then again, that it isn't. And uh, we'll, we'll see some correlations here, and, and not so much in plot, but really in the, in the way of uh, attitude and, and layout of, of the uh, project itself. My friend has some money to option a script. They, they want to make a smaller kind of, uh, uh, not artsy, but I, I guess contained kind of movie. So he, he options this script and he sends it to me to read. Now, I really wish he would have sent me the script before they optioned it. Uh, the writer uh, is even himself, apparently he said that the writer himself wrote this a couple years ago and is kind of indifferent to it. So that's that's a red flag already. When, when the writer is not behind their own project and is kind of like, yeah, well, it's, it's okay, it, it doesn't suck, uh, that should be telling you something. So I, I read this story. And I sit down and I'm prepared to give really detailed notes on all this because I, I look at it as, you know, this is somebody that, that I respect. Uh, they do great work. 
And I want to see that that level of consistency continue. And about probably five pages into this, I realize we're already in trouble. And, and, and the number one problem with this script, uh, really, there are a lot of problems with it. But the number one problem with it was is, is the structure. Uh, we have an opening that just goes on forever and starts bleeding into seven or eight pages. And, and for you filmmakers out there and screenwriters, you know that, that there are certain beats you have to follow. And even though, look, there is no set format for a screenplay when you get down to it literally. If you're James Cameron or you're Christopher Nolan or Goyer or somebody like that, you, know, you, can, you can write uh, you know, a 200-page screenplay and, and someone's going to take it seriously and read it. But when, when you're at that other level and you're writing something that's starting to creep over 100 pages and especially if it hits that 120-page mark and, and starts going into 125, 130, you, you have to understand most of the time people reading your scripts, if you're sending them out there to studios and such, are these young readers and, and they're, they're, it's not the producer and it's not the director or, or the filmmaker that you want it to be that's reading that, that script. It's, it's some reader and they take home a stack of script, scripts, probably getting you know 25 to 50 bucks a script to read them and coming back with recommendations. So if they start feeling bored or seeing an opening that's going on forever, it just goes on the no pile. They don't have all that time to sit there and hope that the script corrects itself and gets better as they go. By I'm telling you, by page 10, you're either on the no or the considered pile. And then from there, you can still get winnowed out. So the plot of this script is a ghost story. And, and you know, it's really hard to change up the ghost story because they're, they're usually only so many things you can do with it. And and usually at the heart of every ghost story, it's either revenge or the person telling the story turns out to be the ghost. So you can, you can end up uh, with, you know, like a, an others kind of thing. I, I can throw out all these examples or uh, the one that I will use, which here is my point in, in getting how I'll connect this with The Shining. And that is, um, I remember way back when The Sixth Sense came out. And I had a friend of mine who is no longer with us, uh, died very young of stomach cancer. And uh, he came to me and he was an English teacher and he was flipping out over the sixth sense. He was like, you, I'm taking you to see this. You've got to see this movie. You are going to flip. You're never going to guess this ending. The ending is going to blow you away. And so we get in the theater and I'm sitting there and I'm telling you, I kid you not, I swear on my dead mother's grave. Seven minutes in, I look at him and I go, so Bruce Willis is dead, right? And he looks at me and he just goes, how the fuck do you know that? And he was really genuinely pissed because I, I popped his balloon. And and my response was not that I was some like, you know, smarmy dick that I know everything about movies. But my problem with it was I've I've seen this kind of plot Dozens of times, whether it was Night Gallery or The Twilight Zone or, or reading, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's collection of short stories from other authors where a number of the ghost stories were either the same thing. The, the person telling the story is the ghost or the ghost wanted revenge. And so I looked at him and, and afterwards when it was done and I just said, look, dude, it's it's nothing that hasn't been done before. I'm not saying it wasn't a good movie, but don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining and that this is, you know, new and it's exciting and it's fresh and no one's done it before. It's been done a number of times. And the problem is, is that we forget this. We have become so focused on the now and what's new and what's fresh 
that we forget the origins of all these things. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I when I used to teach, I said something in class one time just around the height of scream. And I said something like, well, we all go a little mad sometimes. And this kid looks at me and he goes, oh, that's scream. I said, no, that's psycho. The, the kid borrowed it because the whole movie is is a tip of the hat to all these old horror films. And this kid sat there and went, it is. You went and paid money and saw this and you had no fucking idea what you were watching. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the heart of cinema. So back to my friend's script. Um, he he optioned this script and I read it, as I said. And we we start out, I, I guess, with something that obviously this guy, the, the main character, has you know, the secret and, and it's, it involves his father and, and it goes into all this stuff. And, and the big problem was, is the dialogue was extremely flat and you have a husband and wife that are extremely vanilla. Uh, they have a small boy. You know that the boy is just the tool that's going to be used to see the ghosts. And, and without doubt, one of the biggest tropes in a ghost story is when the little kid draws the spooky picture and shows it to the parapsychologist or the doctor and sure enough, that scene shows up. And, and I said, you might as well have just had the ghost possessing the kid and the kid could go out and on the sidewalk or driveway and use some chalk to draw uh, the picture of, of Freddy Krueger and, and all of that stuff like we see in those Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And have you ever noticed with that kind of stuff that, that there's no way kids drew that, that you can tell that it was adults, like an art designer who drew that trying to look like a kid. Like, go and really see some chalk drawings by little kids, and the ones in the movies always just look a little too damn good, don't they? Well, anyway, we we have all of this and more, and and we have a parapsychologist who ends up showing up for basically one scene and drops the inevitable, which I always call the Tangina line from Poltergeist, and that is, although they've seen lots of ghosts in their lifetime, they've never seen anything quite like this or that powerful. Of course you haven't, because it's this script. And it just goes on to involve a father who wants revenge, and and it just turns into a complete and most of all extremely dull and boring film. And that's the big thing. I could see if this had a lot of shock effects or it was scary or even jump scares. This is dull. And they optioned it. And then he comes to me and he says, well, how do I fix it? And and I said, well, you really shouldn't be optioning a script to fix. You should have a script that's pretty much ready to go. I mean, there's there's always a, a director's pass or you know something that could always need some brushing up but not anything that requires a page one rewrite. I'll give you another example of this. I had someone approach me back right around after Six Degrees of Hell release, so around 2012, and they came to me with a project about the Jersey Devil, you know, the the urban legend of the horse-like winged bat creature that lives down in the New Jersey Barrens somewhere that has been around, I guess, since basically the 1800s in which the, the hockey team takes its name from. So anyway, uh, you know, he writes this story about the Jersey Devil and he sends it to me, wants me to direct it. And so I read it and I got back to the guy. He said, well, listen, I want you to be brutally honest in your assessment of my script. And I'm like, okay, well, here we go. I said, the number one problem with this script, aside from the fact that your monster is not scary at all, is that it suffers from the Jaws 2 syndrome. And the guy says, well, what the hell is that? I said, well, you saw Jaws 2, right? 
And he goes, yeah. I said, is there a shark in Jaws 2? He goes, well, yeah. I said, right, because the title is Jaws 2. So we know there was a shark in the first film. So damn it, there's going to be a shark in this one. We know how the film opens. I said, how's the film open? He goes, well, the shark eats those two divers. Right. And then the shark eats a water skier. And we go on and on and on. The audience, we know there's a shark. But the problem is Chief Brody isn't sure there's a shark. And we spend almost pretty much three quarters of the film waiting for Brody to catch up to what we already know. So that means we need to be uh, have scenes that punctuate, you know, shark action to keep us interested because basically that's where it's it's going to go. And we, we know where it's going to end up. Brody's going to discover there's a shark in the big finale where he kills the shark. So in the meantime, you got to keep your audience engaged. And I said, your film doesn't do that. I said, you have two journalists that are tracking around looking for this thing. And we already know this thing exists and you don't really have a lot going on. And, and the other thing was, the rep- one reporter has a dog that you named Durwood, which is supposed to be an inside joke to Bewitched, which, again, if this is going for an audience that most kids watch horror movies, they don't know Bewitched. Maybe the, the crappy Will Ferrell remake of the show, but they don't know what Bewitched was, and they certainly don't know that Durwood was the slur name that Endora gave Darren as, as a slight on his name because she could never be bothered to know his name. And that maybe is kind of cute to somebody who's older and can get that, but it's an irrelevant kind of thing. And you give the dog dialogue. Like I'm reading a script where the dog is actually going, it says Durwood and woof, woof, woof. So we spend most of this script waiting for these two dipshit journalists to figure out there's a Jersey devil and we already know there's a Jersey devil. Well, that is pretty much the problem of this script that my buddy optioned. We, we know there's a ghost. We know something happened. Only like halfway through the script does the writer even fall on something interesting where what if the guy is just imagining all of this? And it's like, yeah, but you don't introduce that at, at the middle of the second act. That should be from the beginning. So when he asked me, how do I fix it? I replied, well, number one, here's what I would do. I would make the wife that she was someone who got him out of a bad situation. And that means maybe this guy suffered heavy PTSD from serving in in Iraq or Afghanistan. And and he chose to go into the military to deliberately die, figuring that might be the best way to get killed. He doesn't have it in him to kill himself. Maybe he was looking for some type of self-destructive avenue for the dark thing that happened in his life that we start hinting about in the beginning of this guy's script in which he says, I can't really talk about it. Well, God damn it, we know you're going to end up talking about it because we know that it has to be that way. So if you're going to do this and give us a little bit more mystery instead of saying, no, I have something dark in my past and, and I cannot talk about it. Yes, you can. And you will. And we know you will. So I said, why not make the wife really strong that she's the one who kind of put the pieces back together and maybe they don't all fit right. Or maybe there's, you know, broken fissures where all the pieces will never seal perfectly. And maybe he turned to drugs. Maybe she was his nurse. Maybe she was his counselor or something like that. A Florence Nightingale situation, but that she's heavily vested in this man. And all of a sudden her husband is starting to take that dark turn again. He's starting to show that he has certain problems that she has not 
not seen in a while. They've been pretty happy till he gets this letter in the mail that his father died. And all of a sudden, bad shit starts happening again. Now we're a little bit vested into this project. And why don't we take it a little further and actually really give some ghost action here instead of the usual, oh, we hear some moaning out in the woods on his father's estate and the little boy wakes up and he's staring out the window because only children can hear ghosts. I guess only children and and animals. That's really it. It's every ghost story trope that you've ever seen or possibly read in a short story. And my response was, You need a page one rewrite to fix this. And frankly, with the projects I have on my plate right now, I can't be doing this. So you really probably should have thought about this a little more before optioning it. Now, the writer himself says, I can go back and I can fix it. Just tell me what you want. Sometimes this works. Sometimes this doesn't. Sometimes you need a whole new fresh set of eyes, which is why scripts in the studio system will get written even by an A-list writer and then turned over for a rewrite by someone else. And all of you listening that have seen these huge films know what happens when, when things take place. Sometimes it's better when they get rewritten and sometimes it's not so good. I mean, take, for example, read the original draft of Godzilla, the 2014 Godzilla. And then I've I've read subsequent drafts and then I saw what made it to the screen. Boy, are there some major changes. Some for the best, some not, including a, a spectacular scene that I wish they would have filmed, which would have really made the film a roller coaster ride and it never made it. Maybe we'll see something later in another film like that. So my friend asked me, he says, well, I don't get it. Like you, you really didn't like it that much. I said, it's not that I didn't like it. It's just that it's boring. And this is where I dovetail over to The Shining. And I I said, you need to go back. I told him, I said, you really want to know what's going on here? I said, go back and look at The Shining. And he goes, well, I love The Shining. I said, and again, I, I have to say this on this podcast. I always have to give a disclaimer. And that is, I don't hate The Shining. I mean, The Shining has had plenty written about it. And and I said some stuff on Howard Stern uh, a couple months ago where you know people like came at me and they were just like, The Shining is terrifying. No, it's not. It's a well-made film and it's it's really got some excellent production value, some great disturbing and creepy visuals, but it is hardly a terrifying film. That's from time rehabbing this movie and people looking at things through the eyes of nostalgia. Now, I will say this. I am looking forward to buying a ticket to see Dr. Sleep and maybe Dr. Sleep, since it looks like it's deeply interwoven with The Shining's DNA as a sequel, um, maybe that'll make me appreciate the, The Shining extended universe a little bit more. I don't know. I'm not saying I hate The Shining. I think it's way overhyped and it's way overpraised. I mean, Spielberg made it a center plot point in Ready Player One and focused on the fact that its creator, Stephen King, if you remember that, hated the film. And I think that was a great scene and in some ways far more entertaining than the actual movie The Shining. And you can you can read plenty of my my King articles on my cinema blog if if you have some free time. Cinema is not about reviews. It's it's looking at cynicism in filmmaking and entertainment. So in connecting The Shining with the script that that my buddy optioned, I, I told him go back and look at The Shining, and I want you to understand why. So I explained a lot of this to him that I'm now laying out for you in the second part of this podcast. And that is, you know, Kubrick's translation of King's novel is, is a certain amount of cynicism to it. 
after some online conversations, you know, I, I, I thought maybe I'll tie this together with, with my next podcast because really reading that option script reminded me of The Shining. It's kind of a, a ghost story where really just not a whole hell of a lot happens. Nostalgia has given, you know, Kubrick's quote unquote horror masterpiece a real free pass in my opinion. I mean, a lot of people forget that that the film's 1980 release saw really mediocre and tepid and indifferent reviews. It was not a huge hit. It did not knock the critics on their ass. And it took a while for the film to build up. I got to tell you, man, that the previews I felt were scarier than the actual movie. I remember I was in like seventh grade when this movie came out. And I remember when the previews would come on with that that scary music and images of Nicholson hobbling through the, the snow, through that hedge and coming up and looking at the camera with that, that scary face. And that was after he killed Scatman Crothers, not the iconic one where he smashes through the door and says, here's Johnny, which is extremely overplayed. Um, I mean, I, I was like crap in my pants. If that, if that shit used to come on late at night when I was watching TV late at night on the, in the summer, I would turn the preview. Uh, that's how much it bothered me. And then I saw the movie and I went, I guess. I mean, the film made money and it did well on cable and home video. And, and that's where I say it went on to entertainment rehab. And to be fair, a number of films weren't appreciated in their time. And, and look, let's face it, box office can mean absolutely dick when it comes down to the quality of a motion picture. I mean, whether a, a film succeeded or failed, look, there's some great gigantic blockbusters that are absolute garbage. And you know what I'm talking about. You don't have to name them. Everybody sitting there can go, yup, I know exactly what he means. And there's some that flopped and man, were they fantastic. So I'm not using that as my sole litmus test. The nostalgia fueled sentiment buoyed by the fact that this is one of the best made, that The Shining itself is one of the best made adaptations of a King novel, well, that's why I feel it's successful. And there have been numerous bad translations of, of King's work. And I will say it right here on record, man. Children of the Corn is, and you're going to love the pun, a shining example of a bad adaptation. It was his short story badly adapted into a schlocky 1984 film before The Terminator catapulted Linda Hamilton to fame. Somehow, man, that Children of the Corn movie spawned, I think, what is it now? Like over five sequels to date? And they're like talking about a reboot? Ah, oh, brother. The story goes that Stanley Kubrick passed over book after book to find his next project somewhere around the late 70s, something like that. You can read all kinds of variations of this. And and he came across King's best-selling novel, The Shining, and, and boom, that was it. He was on to his next project. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book, it's, it's about a man's slow descent into madness through alcohol and addiction. Uh, the ghosts are very real in the novel, and, and they torment the, the main character, Jack Torrance, who will go on to be played by Jack Nicholson. And, and they break him from his sobriety and they break him as a husband and a father. And, and Jack's sanity unravels. And as he unravels more of the Overlook's history, his mental stability also unravels as well. He goes further down a, a nightmare rabbit hole is really what happens. And it'll transform him from a flawed man to a psychotic killer. And he's possessed to do the hotel's bidding. That's the book. And some will go, well, that's the movie. No, 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 it's not. There are some major changes from book to movie. And I know some of you go, yeah, well, that's the way that it goes. They, they change the book. And look, a lot of times the, the movies are better than the book. No, not a lot of times, but, but sometimes, yes. I mean, we can look at Jaws, The Exorcist, The Godfather as, as excellent examples of, of translations from books to, to movies. It was Kubrick who said, 
he took this book, this, you know, 100 million copy bestseller or whatever it was. I mean, everybody knew The Shining is a brand, is Stephen King's brand. And it is a ghost story. It is not in the guy's head. It is firmly a ghost story. And, and Kubrick says, well, I want to make an anti-ghost story. And so my, my response to that is, is why the fuck do you want to do that? Other than that you're Stanley Kubrick. Why would you want to do that? That's like taking Jaws and I think I'm going to turn it into an environmental story. So really, you know, Quint, Brody, and Hooper are bad guys. And the poor shark, he's being hunted. And great whites, you know, they've been hunted to almost extinction. And, and you know, really, it's an endangered species. And we end up feeling really badly for the shark. And, oh, we're not even going to show the shark, by the way. Um, we're just going to allude to the shark. We'll show the barrels. And only at the end, when they pull the dead shark out of the water, then we see the shark. I mean, is that the movie you wanted to see from the book? You wanted to see a movie about a shark that eats and swims and makes little sharks. And that's all. I mean, if you're Kubrick, great. Then go off and, and make your anti-ghost story, whatever the hell that is, and not call it The Shining. I can understand if it was some obscure little book, but goddamn, man, it was a worldwide bestseller. Like I said, it had a brand. So this is either really high arrogance or, or cynicism on Kubrick's part. Oh, you love the book, everybody? Great, because when you sit down in the theater, you're getting something so far removed from the book, you're going to hate it. You know, so I'll ask you, how is this any different than the fan hate for Zack Snyder's interpretation of the DC comic universe? He, he foregoed you know, fan expectations and basically said in interviews he made the superhero movies for himself. How is that any different? So Kubrick went off and made his anti-ghost story movie for himself. Stephen King is on record stating his opposition to Jack Nicholson playing Jack Torrance in the film. He said basically Jack is playing Jack and the problem which I said also is is that Jack is crazy from the start of the movie. From the, from the moment we see this guy he's, he's off and he's creepy and in fact Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance even when we meet him in the beginning looks like he hasn't bathed in like a week and just rolled out of bed and he probably smells a little like piss and bananas. Why do we like him? He has no bond with his wife. He has certainly no bond with the kid. In fact, the first time that we, we see him with the kid, he's a wise ass to the kid on their Volkswagen Beetle ride up to the hotel. There's no love there. This is a disjointed family. And most of all, the chemistry between him and Duval was totally wrong. They, they did not fit together. I don't believe for one minute they were long together long enough to have sex let alone get married and have a kid. At the end of The Shining in the book, I mean, Danny is losing his father and his father does one last act of sanity and, and heroism to save his boy. There is none of that in this film at all. And I know you can argue again, well, that's the book and this is the movie and they change things to make the movie. I get it. I'm, I'm not an idiot about this. It's just simply... There is nothing here. Jack is crazy from the start. There is no arc to his character. So by the time we get to the here's Johnny, all right, well, that's what we kind of waited for, right? We sat through this whole movie, up through all of this. Is he is he crazy? Is he drunk? Is there really a woman in the tub? Is, is there all of this? And a lot of slow moving dialogue, like the scene where Danny comes up to the apartment and Jack has him sit on the bed and he asks if he likes the hotel. 
just talks like this. And as I'm listening to this now and talking about this, I'm looking back on The Shining as if the whole fucking movie was shot in slow motion. I know what you're thinking. Harrison, you do hate The Shining. No, I don't. I'm, I'm just pointing out that the correlations between The Shining and this script that I read, it's a lot of nothing. It's a lot of style over substance. You get some beautiful images. And even in this script, there were some interesting images that this guy wrote that I could see in my head. But in the end, it kind of all adds up to nothing. I mean, if you go back and you're looking at performances, okay, Nicholson's Torrance is an alcoholic, but but doesn't seem the least bit remorseful for the abuse of his wife and son. And, and Kubrick took a strong female character in the book and made Wendy Torrance a simpering dish rag. She just cries. She's like Talia Shire in, in the movie Prophecy in 1979. I swear to God, all Talia Shire did was cry in that movie. Now, I mean, word has it that, that Kubrick mentally abused Duvall on set to the point that she suffered like permanent mental damage as a result. And whether this is true or not, the director showed absolute contempt for the Wendy Torrance character. And let me tell you, man, it shows on screen. Without Jack, you got Jack for The Shining. Jack is an asshole to his wife from their very first scenes together in that VW bug ride that I said. She annoys Jack all the time and she seemed to have annoyed Kubrick. Wait, just who are we talking about here? The real actors or the characters? See, you really can't tell, can you? Once again, there are no character arcs in The Shining, just like the script that my, my buddy optioned. Wendy briefly finds resolve after whacking Jack with the bat and locking him up. But from there, it's a scream fest run through the whole hotel and to the end. Why would a director and writer remove this important aspect from a story that is an allegory for the disintegration of the American family? It missed all of its meat. So you have a skeleton for The Shining, and it's a spooky skeleton, but there's no real threat and there's no real meat to the film. I've seen a number of the making of the Shining documentaries, and, and it's always cool to see stuff like that, you know, especially in a film that I, I have a lot of contention with. One of the documentaries said that uh, Kubrick tried to prevent the actor Danny Lloyd from from knowing he was making a horror film. And, and you know, frankly, when I was watching, I said, well, it seems like he tried to do that for his audience as well. I mean, the, the director said he wanted to, the film to play out as a psychological mind trip. Maybe there weren't any ghosts. Was it all in Jack's head? Perhaps it's about insanity. So again, you pick a ghost story and make it without ghosts. Makes sense. Instead of Jaws without a shark, how about making The Godfather without the mafia? Hey, maybe we could see a version of Superman where the hero doesn't have any real powers. That that sounds great, doesn't it? In the final 20 minutes of the film, there is confirmation that The Shining is a ghost story. Someone opened that goddamn pantry door that had been locked. And that was Grady for sure. Wendy then sees images in her final run through the hotel and sees the blood gushing from the elevators that was also in her son's vision. So, ghost story confirmed. I mean, was it a continuity error that Grady's first name is at first said to be Charles, then later it's Delbert? Is it the same Grady? I mean, I mean it has to be, right? He chopped, both chopped up their families with an axe. So is it a Kubrick mind fucked as, as a director play with, with Grady's first name? Or, or did Kubrick fuck it up with all the rewrites that were going on on the time that they were shooting on set? Some call it genius, but imagine if it was an uncaught typo. How does it even add to the story? What, what do we get out of that? Okay, so Charles or Delbert, 
wow, that really throws me as, as a viewer. And then, like I said before, when I was doing my, my slow talk, when you think about the pacing of The Shining, doesn't it really seem like the whole movie's in slow motion? Even the way the characters speak, their wooden dialogue is slow. The cars move slow. The walking is slow. Even Jack running through the maze at the end seems slightly on the slow side than the fast manic side. Defenders say, well, that's what Kubrick wanted, to unsettle us, make us on edge, uncomfortable. I mean, maybe, but man, the book provided much more entertaining ways to do that without boring the reader. We get the big 4 p.m. type black screen titles or Tuesday with a thump of music to again unsettle us. I guess I have to stop here for a second to once again say, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm just trying to point out and pick through the hype around it and look at the film for what it is. I mean, let's let's look at for one of the best things about this movie. Scatman Crothers was the best casting in this movie. His Dick Halloran was warm, fatherly, and a delight. It was like they plucked him out of the book and dropped him into a version he didn't belong. Scatman's Shining Chef is the only real source of warmth in this whole film. And that said, Kubrick decides to go through the trouble of setting up his only character with an arc and then kill him off after a trek through most of the third act. Get him from Florida, travel through the snow-choked roads, and then kill him less than 10 minutes after arriving back at the Overlook. But that's the genius of Kubrick, the defenders yell. Halloran plays the fatherly proxy to Danny while the boy slowly loses his father. Halloran is the anti-Overlook force. The hotel might actually fear him as it, it surely fears Danny. The only problem is none of this is explored in the Kubrick film adaptation. Instead, we have Crothers introduced, bond with a boy, and never connect with him again. The only real interesting character who could have provided some great detail was Scatman Crothers' Dick Halloran. He could have provided the history of the hotel. And in the end, he's only used as the film's kill, the single kill. What a fucking ripoff. What was good about The Shining? There's plenty that's good about The Shining. There were numerous things well done about the film, but I'm telling you, man, the best thing Kubrick did was make a real villain out of the Overlook Hotel. From, from the exterior of the building to inside, the building reeks menace and evil. You can feel it. Kubrick made it palpable. The real Stanley Hotel that King based the overlook upon is, is not really a, a scary building. Go look it up. I mean, it's, it's really quaint and it's big and it's old timey, but it's, it's not scary. Kubrick's choice to go with the hotel we got in the film was dead on. The exterior of the hotel looks like some giant bat-winged demon like perched atop its mountain ready to eat anyone who comes near. And his choice to make the interior like a maze with rooms that couldn't possibly fit inside, well, that was excellent. The hotel is scary as hell, and you never knew what was going to be around a corner. So why not go full force with ghosts and give us really scary events to utilize this set properly? Don't just throw us the same two weird looking twins or sisters, maybe they weren't twins kind of thing. Give us something that really is great, that matches the playground for the ghosts that you gave us. And, and rolling right into that, man, the cinematography, I mean, my God is The Shining a beautiful looking film. And it would look great on an IMAX screen. And I'll tell you what, I would pay right now if it was playing in IMAX, I would go see it in IMAX. The film is huge in scope and it's lit to perfection and it is totally atmospheric. 
It is just an absolutely gorgeous film and one of the best produced King adaptations ever. And, and for the score, which is just incredible, is this really music? I mean, it was breakthrough in my opinion. And, and like I said, as a boy, absolutely unsettling. And that music in the very opening sets us up for something disturbing. I remember, like I said, man, at the start of this, the TV spot scaring the shit out of me as a kid because of that music. And to this day, when I watch the film, it is the score that unsettles me the most. Well, I guess that and the woman in the tub. And that rolls me right into the ghosts. I mean, when they do show up, those ghosts bring it. As, as I said before, the, the entire scene in room 237 is still scary and wonderfully executed. That woman in the tub is a truly disturbing image. And it gives Nicholson a run for his money in, in sheer lunacy. And believe me, man, obviously that scene was so disturbing from the previews of Dr. Sleep, they brought her back so they knew what to bring back because that woman in the tub was absolutely terrifying. And the sisters, those, those sisters, calm twins, whatever. I mean, they were scary, but they become way overrated and overused in the internet world. I, I think what they, they actually trav, travel on a horror con circuits. And I, I've even seen, I think at FYE, they have dolls made of them. But it was that dog costume, or is it a bear at the end where it's, I think it's blowing that guy in, in the hotel room when Shelley Duvall sees it, the guy in the tux. I mean, all of that hints at the debauchery that, that was going on behind the scenes in the long history of, of the Overlook. And the Overlook does have a dark past and it keeps it within its superficially stodgy upper crust walls. And it's only hinted at in these ghost scenes. But when it is, it's brilliant. So again, when Kubrick does decide to give us a ghost story, this movie fires on all cylinders. But when he plays coy, we get a slow moving thriller. And I mean, you have to talk about the maze, the interior of the hotel, which is a maze as well. And Kubrick's decision to get rid of those animal hedges that were in the book, they moved. If you read the book, they had topiaries of lions and bears and stuff like that. And they came alive and they chased Danny. And, and despite the, the special effects limitations of, of 1979, 1980, which probably would have been some type of elaborate stop motion or maybe even like Disney hand cell animation. There was no CGI at the time. It, I will say it was a good departure from the book to, to get rid of those things and go with the, the hedge maze. I got to tell you, man, the scene where Danny and Wendy walk that maze with Jack inside looking down on the model of the maze is cinematically breathtaking. And I still wonder how they did this so seamlessly. I saw that there is a video on YouTube that explains how they did it. And I'm not quite so sure I want to see how they did it because it blows me away every time I see it. And the, and the set construction for the interior of the Overlook is, as I said before, is, is meant to confuse us and it absolutely works. I mean, how could that gold ballroom fit inside this place? It's like the walls have no real boundaries and the hotel can expand and change at will. And, and it adds the entire mind screw that I think Kubrick intended. So like The Shining, I'm going to equate this with the script that I read. Creepy, eerie, sometimes disturbing. Yeah. Terrifying. No, The Shining is often slow, miscast, plotting, and indulgent. Cinema, to some extent, it had contempt for its source material and audience fan base and had all the means to do better. So paradoxically, we, we do get a good film out of it, and I think that's a fair assessment. As for my friend's script that he read, it's extremely dull, extremely boring. It's a ghost story, and then it's not. Uh, it has all the tropes, including a little kid. 
who sees the ghost. I see dead people, and here's a spooky drawing of a ghost. And in the end, really adds up to not much. So what did I tell him? I guess that's the whole point of this podcast. What do you say to your filmmaker friend? And I told him, you probably wasted your money and you're going to need a page one rewrite. Take it back to the original author and hope that he will do something better with it. That's all you can say. He did reply to me saying, well, he did write this script a couple years ago. He's totally open to changes and suggestions. And all I could reply was good. I I hope he is. and, And I really hope it works out for you. But that's the problem. When you jump too fast, you really need to read and understand what you're optioning because if you're going to go find money for this to make this into a feature film, it's got to blow away that check writer. So keep that in mind. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. And I thank you all for listening and I look forward to the next one. Have a great weekend. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.